Welcome to Between the Gutters, the podcast where we talk about stories within the panels. This is Asian Albert Lamb. Did you say agent or Asian? Asian. Asian? Asian. <laughs> okay. Um, this is uh, Asian Drew Tan. <laughs> no, since we... At our last podcast, we were talking about giving ourselves nicknames, so I needed some alliteration, so I went Asian Albert Lamb, and this is Definitive Drew Tan. Okay, okay, but I am I am Definitive Drew Tan, who happens to be Asian as well. Uh, how, how are you? I'm good, and today, we have two of our contributors here with us. We have Zany, Zach, That's Hannah... <laughs> And, and alienated Alexander Shanus. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's our tribute to Stanley today. <laughs> <laughs> the alliterative nicknames. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. So, welcome to our podcast. Today we are continuing our series of recommendations for first-time comics readers. Uh, this is where we go for anybody. First-time comic readers, but these are really comics that can be enjoyed by anybody. Um, so the, uh, what what we're going to be doing in this series is we're going to go over all of the different genres that uh, that <coughs> that are in fiction, and we're going to give our picks for the comics that we would recommend. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and today's uh, today's comic is going to be crime fiction. Today's genre is going to be crime fiction. So uh, before we start, what we're going to do is we're going to give you a brief synopsis of what. What counts as crime fiction? And what we have here is crime fiction is a genre of fiction that focuses on criminals, crime, or crime detection and their motives as the basis of the story. And if that sounds familiar, like if you think you heard that or read that on Wikipedia or something, well, Albert wrote the Wikipedia entry for crime fiction, so you know it's legit. I mean, that... I mean, I took the definition that I found on Wikipedia and I changed after, the words. After you, after you wrote it. <laughs> after I wrote it. So it's not going to sound like what was in Wikipedia anyways. So. It is based on a true story. There is a site called Wikipedia and they do have a definition for crime comics. <laughs> okay, so today we're going to start off with Alexander Shanus. So go ahead. Please tell these good people what your crime comic is. So the one I recommended is Road to Perdition, (laughs) although it does have a good follow-up, or you could say not a prequel or a sequel, it's kind of an in-between story called On the Road to Perdition. Uh, A lot of you may be familiar with Road to Perdition because it was in fact turned into a movie some years ago starring the uh, magnificent, talented, and beautiful Tom Hanks. (laughs) Talented Tom Hanks. Yeah. Talented Tom Hanks. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Just keeps getting better and better. Well, actually, it would be his name if you use his first name as an initial. Oh, true, true. That'd <laughs> be thanks. Thanks. It would be thanks. <laughs> T. Hanks. <laughs> so, who wrote Road to Perdition? Uh, the writer is Max Allen Collins, and it was illustrated by Richard Pierce Rayner. Not Tom Hanks. Not Tom Not Hanks. Tom Hanks. <laughs> Nobody can draw Tom Hanks better than Tom Hanks can draw himself in real life. True, true. Um, so, okay, how the, about. What it's about? Yeah, Yeah, so Road to Perdition is uh, about, I guess, a a father-son journey in the world of 
the early, I think, 1920s crime. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, back when Prohibition was still a thing, uh, you had uh, Al Capone running things around in the Chicago uh, area. Uh, and they're not really running away or running to anything in particular, uh, but they're being hounded by uh, the father's ex-employers. So without giving away too much, the way that I remember the story is the uh, the father is kind of a hired muscle for a crime family. He's a hired muscle. He's called the angel of death. Yeah, and his son ends up witnessing, witnessing him in action. A, a crime, essentially. Mm-hmm. And because of that, uh, the father is forced to flee with his son. And it's this story of... Yes. Although the there's this element of, um, you know, terror, uh, there, it's also this bonding experience between the two of them. Correct. Uh, I mean, it's, it's also at the heart of it. I would say half revenge, half justice story. Yeah. Because there's a certain sense of justice that's achieved. Like, there's a certain cyclic nature. Without giving away too much uh, to what happens. But it still is a crime story because the father and son, lo and behold, they commit crimes against the criminals to get their attention in, in their journey uh, to perdition. Right, right, right. I remember that. It was uh, basically while they were on the run uh, in order to get a statement across to his his former employers. They were robbing all these banks on mm-hmm. the road and basically just making it costly for them to continue to pursue them. Right. It was the banks where the uh, Al Capone and the other... Yeah, heads. it was the banks where the gangs were hold, uh, holding, holding the money, their yeah. money. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So why why what what exactly about Road to Perdition makes it stand out to you? Why why is this something that you would recommend as a crime story to a new reader or any reader, but you know, new readers? At the core of it, it just it was a very touching story about loss, but how within the loss, like the father and son were able to like create something between each other, like they really bonded and they really understood this perspective of like who each person was and what really defined them as people. Because uh, one of the opening parts of the book is the father tells his son after his son witnesses the uh, him gutting down some other criminals. He tells him, like, do you know what a soldier is? And he kind of gives him a brief explanation, like, how he is a soldier in this war. Um, and so you get this kind of, this somber outlook of, like, okay, the father is just this very stuff figure in his work experience he's a soldier but as you go through the book this soldier is uh is far more than that um and far more than what even the uh criminal element really understood him to be but even the son himself goes from having this black white perspective of like what crime is to seeing okay there's there's actually degrees of what crime really is and who really is a bad guy or a good guy so you kind of see this childlike understanding becoming more evolved but I just like the fact it was just a father-son uh, story the from a perspective that you wouldn't really picture which is mm. them committing crimes yeah. <laughs> to get back at criminals yeah. there's a lot of uh, from what I remember there's a lot of like 
father and son sort of illusions, or there's a lot of father and son dynamics being <clears throat> explored in this book because this is true. Um, the gang, the the leader of the gang that he works for is someone that he perceives as almost a surrogate father for himself. Yeah, I think the loonies, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in addition to that, the the reason that they get in uh, in trouble is because the uh, the the leader of the gang, his son is actually kind of this weaker figure who acts out and overcompensates. Overcompensates and you know, to some degree the that sense of father and son, although his his actual father is the head of the gang, he thinks it uh, entitles him to behave a certain way, and when in all reality the um, the main character of the story I forget his name, uh, Oh the, Sullivan I think Oh Sullivan he he's kind of the guy that he would have preferred to have been. Yes, his, his yeah. son. If it was given that opportunity, well, the very funny thing I was mentioning that is that um, yeah. all this is precipitated because what ends up causing the the son to witness the crime is a crime that actually didn't have to happen. It was yeah. because the son of the mob boss was unhinged and had to prove something by uh, <laughs> by being called yeah essentially what would would amount to a middle school insult, which most of us would just shrug off and be like, okay, whatever. Yeah, mm -hmm. which was even <laughs> hardly even really an insult. It's just like okay. Yeah. Uh, he felt disrespected. He felt disrespected yeah. and <laughs> and just overreacted and it's like okay. Should it have made him feel small? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that was coming. I didn't, I didn't know who was going to say it, but I'm like, how long do I have to wait? Um, do you want to talk about the art style a little bit at all? Um, sure. So the art style is actually, despite what the covers will show, which the covers are beautifully colored and drawn <laughs> but the pages inside are all it's all black and white but the detail is just fantastic and the realism of the expression that's brought out through the uh, black and white uh, offset is is really beautiful like there's a lot of interesting light play that happens here and there um, just the expression that is that is that comes through through the lines is just phenomenal um so it's both simple but detailed. And I don't know, it's, it's hard to describe. It's like you'd have to see it for yourselves. But it really does pick out almost, and I think very fittingly, that sense of like the old gangster reels you'd see, like the black and white, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. era. Like even the way their faces are drawn, it has a very like like archetypical like feel to it. And and just also the vistas of Chicago and the other like yeah, look at Midwest cities are just... Yeah. Like, I can't imagine how long it took just to even just get that hashed yeah. on there. But what I'm looking at, it looks like a combination of uh, brush and nib pin work, yeah? Oh, it could be. I'm not at all familiar with any aspect of art. Okay. My best rendition of artwork is me drawing stick figures. <laughs> <laughs> That's really it. I've tried other things, but um, I'm going to stick with math, to math and physics, and just <laughs> writing words, not... Them pictures pretty. <laughs> hey, so decidedly like the opposite of my areas of expertise. Anything mathematical, you handle that. I can't. I just, can't deal with like, it. Just this one page panel right here is like the overlay of the father's oh, face, the sons against like the city backdrop. Yeah, that's gorgeous. It is just. It's incredibly realistic and yeah. detailed. Yep. But it's never over cluttered. Yeah. No, there's like no bulging muscles, nothing bizarre. Everything is drawn to affect what's happening in the story. But also it gives you a really sense, a really cool sense of change in each character's like emotions. Like 
the son here, you can tell by his grimace something's bothering him without even reading the the the, the, the narrative. Yeah, the yeah. caption. Yeah, it's pretty beautiful stuff. Like there, there was one picture earlier that I was looking at where it was a black and so this comic is in black and white, and it was a picture of Al Capone that looked super photorealistic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's 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 beautiful stuff. Is it this one here? I, don't, I know there's a few. I don't think that's there. Al Capone. Is it not? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I could be wrong here. Um. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on uh, Rudge Perdition, Drew? I do like the comic a lot, too. Um, And actually, the movie is probably one of my favorite comic book movies. Rudge Perdition. should check it out if you haven't seen it. Um, To be honest, I might even say I like the movie more than the comic, which is probably a rare thing to admit that I like the adaptation more than the source material. Uh, but the story is so good, and the comic—the comic is still a really great comic. You should definitely seek it out if you like crime stories and and prohibition era mobsters and things like that. <coughs> the other thing that Shanice mentioned that I really liked about the story too is the whole father-son dynamic. How it's—it works as a story that's a crime story, but it also works as a story that's basically like a gangster version of Lone Wolf and Cub. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that that classic manga series. Yeah. That um, did kind of come to mind when you guys were describing that whole uh, father-son dynamic and them having to take a journey yeah. and all these uh, adventures or misadventures they might be going on. Yeah. And I'm, I'm pretty sure Max Allen Collins was influenced by that, by Lone Wolf and Cub when he came up with this comic. Mm. I feel like I've re- read him say something about that in interviews before. But it, it really uh, comes through and it gives the story this emotional core. Mm. Um, you know, it's just imagine being a kid and and being in the situation and basically being conscripted into being your dad's getaway driver while he's robbing banks and whatnot. That's that's pretty crazy. That's crazy stuff. That's the, yeah, and it's totally a coming-of-age story, too. Yeah. It's it's kind of what Shanice was saying about this kid who goes from being a kid to kind of going from zero to a hundred right yeah. going from being a kid to a hard hardened criminal getaway driver <laughs> you know and it's, it's like kind of handling that shouldn't transition. he be talking about girls or something <laughs> <laughs> there's there's definitely a sense of tragedy in it yeah um because the kid is definitely young enough where you know that at he he's probably at the age where he should be starting to talk about girls or thinking about things like that or he should be in school you know yeah yeah, yeah. he should he should be out playing playing in the front yard or whatever but he's just he's forced to grow up way faster than anybody should ever have to grow up so he's kind of lost a part of his childhood he's lost a part of his childhood he's lost his innocence and he's living a life of danger on the run with his father and it's just uh there's there's a tragedy to it but i never felt like the story got super sentimental about that tragedy it was more matter of fact in presenting this is their life this is how it is and that's just the way it's gonna be and you just you just you know see what happens to them and you just hope against hope that things don't end up as horrible as you expect them to turn out yeah (laughs) yeah here's a question for you shanis and and i guess for all of for all of you guys but what what do you look for when you look for a really good crime story? 
Ooh, for crime fiction? It's hard to say because I think there's, even within the crime fiction genres, different styles of crime fiction. Like, mm-hmm. the one you have in front of you, like, has its a very different approach in the storytelling than, than Road to Perdition because there's, in this one, there's no mystery, so to speak. There's no, there's mm-hmm. nothing to be solved. There's no detective work really going on. It's just about a, uh, a story from the perspective of, of this father and son who are living in this crime world and they're just surviving mm-hmm. in their own way. Um, so it's hard to say because, honestly, before I read this, I didn't know what I was getting myself into. And it was completely nothing what I expected. When did you read it in the, for the first time? The first time? time I read it was, I think I was in, it was definitely in college years, either undergrad, I don't know, or it might have been other, actually when I was already in graduate school. Sometime between 2000. Three or four in 2010, for sure. Do you remember what motivated you to read it in the first place, if you didn't know what you were going to get yourself into? I think you made some mention that um, you, you had it over. I think it was uh, the comics Outpost. Uh-huh. I was having some sort of sale, and I walked by, and like, I'm, and I saw that the original publisher of this was um, Paradox Press, and you mentioned the other works by Paradox Press. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was like, all right, I'll check this out. It was an imprint of DC Comics back in the 90s. Right. So I know you read it before I did it, so you said it was a pretty good story, so I decided to check it out and read it. Nice, man. I made a difference in my man's <laughs> life. That's true. <laughs> you matter. I mattered. I left my legacy. Shanice carries it on. But I still won't lament your death. Oh, ouch. Wow. Ouch. Well, uh, man's honest. He's honest. <laughs> so what I like about a crime... <laughs> <laughs> um, in all seriousness, I I think I'm the kind of person who likes my crime comics to be sort of hard-edged. Um, there is something naturally about crime as a subject for stories that makes it so that when you're reading it, it's not meant to be taken lightly, you know? So it's, it's, it's a, it's an area of my life that I'm not too familiar with, if only because as far as I can tell, I'm a pretty law-abiding person. So, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Why do you start laughing when you say that, Zach? I think it's the way he said it. I was going to say, just the way that sentence started, as far as I can tell. I I really had... uh, Well, I have to cover my bases, you know? Uh, But but that being said, uh, if if fiction is a form of escapism, then, you know, there there is something about it that... about crime that's... as a a subject that's appealing... Well, not, not appealing, but... Well, maybe appealing is the right word, but yeah. it, it draws you to it because it's so different from what you're accustomed to. Like, it's almost the same way that people like scary movies, you know? it's This isn't who I am, but there's something so fascinating about it, mm-hmm. you know? So, like, I do feel like in everyday life, I wouldn't root for a criminal, you know? Yeah. Uh, but in, in my fiction, there... In order for them to be believable, they have to be hard-edged. And although they're despicable people, there's, I think there have to there has to be elements to them that are 
at least to some degree redeemable. Mm-hmm. And that's what allows you to root for them in an in where in a situation where in any other circumstances I would actually prefer that they be put in jail. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know? But then what about uh crime stories that are written from the perspective of a uh, of a police officer or a detective or something like that? I think in that same note, I cuz crime to me is a very it's a very realistic genre, right? I mean, we we often read about it in the news, and there's always... It's salacious. Yeah, is well, we're, we're is. talking about crime fiction. True crime is a different That's true. category in and mm. of itself. But crime fiction tries to capture the essence of what we are, are associated with in terms of true crime, right? We want realistic, believable characters who have these quirks of personalities that some are over the top, like uh, in Road to Perdition, you have the son who is kind of a weakling but has to overcompensate and we know there are people in the criminal element who operate that way who need to who need to go over the top in violence because they have to hide the fact that they're really just afraid yeah and they don't want to lose control sometimes it's how they get into it sometimes right. it's why they stay in it and sometimes many times it's why they die in it yeah because they it's also a big they, thing they, they enjoy the feeling of having that kind of power even though it's like fake power so to speak yeah, yeah. and you have those who like <clears throat> really are like businessmen who operate the crime the criminal world as if it was a business who like are very diligent strong-willed they're not crazy they're just they just see this as yeah this is a way i can make money and this is a way i can have my empire yeah um and it kind of reminds me of the wire where it was where they didn't look at it or or like the the most successful individuals in you know in the wire didn't look at their enterprise as an illegal activity they treated it like a business mm-hmm. you know so um yeah so you you were never too into like Nancy Drew or the Hardy Boys or things like that. <laughs> Encyclopedia Brown. Encyclopedia Brown. Come oh, on, man. I, I love myself some Encyclopedia Brown. <laughs> I was I was just gonna say guilty as charged. All three, man. <laughs> Go, growing up, I never read Nancy Drew though. What's that? I never I never read Nancy Drew. I read a couple of Nancy Drew. I think the one Hardy Brown Hardy Boys book that I do remember trying to read as a kid had a werewolf in it. So <laughs> what? Pretty yeah. I Are mean, you sure like, you aren't confusing that with an episode of Scooby Doo? <laughs> <laughs> So that's the thing. So it was it was probably a Scooby Doo esque take on that story. Was it a real werewolf or was it just perhaps It was a... probably a dude in a costume. Okay. You know, but like there was a werewolf on the cover. So I think I was reading it more because I thought there would be a werewolf in it, but <laughs> but it wasn't really about them solving a crime. I was just like, Oh yeah. It's so, hilarious. I read so yeah. many of those, but I don't remember one with the werewolf in it. <laughs> or there was a wolf in the title or something. Anyways. Okay. But um, yeah, so that is to say, like, I, I do, for my crime stories, I do, like, sort of, I, I want it to be salacious, and I want it to be, uh, I don't know what, oh, how else to describe it, but it's something to kind of rubberneck, I guess, and mm-hmm. the fact that it's fiction just makes it safe not to do that, you know, in real life, I wouldn't actually do that with a real crime, but. <laughs> I think for me, the common thread to all of them is, is that, um. Once you get invested in the story, there's there's stakes involved, right? There is, there's still an element of there is a clear cut good and bad, and you're never actually quite sure whether you necessarily want the good to always 
come out victorious at the end. Mm. And you're perplexed and curious to find out who, how the story actually and who actually ended, you know, kind of winning, so to speak. Like, uh, there's a great movie starring Jack Nicholson from the 70s, Chinatown, which is, I think, uh, lauded as as one of the greatest crime or detective story movies ever made. Yeah, I've actually, I've actually never seen seen it. And the ending is one of those, like, it ends, but you're not satisfied by the ending. Like, the good guy doesn't actually win the way you yeah, think he yeah, wins. Yeah. Okay, and, um, I know what you're saying. Yeah. And so, but you get really involved. There's, there's yeah. stakes involved in there. And when that ending happens, you like you feel like like yeah. what what you you felt that that the result hits you. Yeah. You know. I I think that's kind of the weird sort of internal conflict that ha- you have with crime stories. Again, to go back on on the one hand, you're rooting against these. In in actual reality, you'd be rooting against these people, but in terms of your fiction, um, you want them to succeed because you're you're invested in the characters. But when you get to that point in the story where it comes to an end, and you know, if if something happens to the criminal, if he gets arrested or he gets killed, um, you're you're sort of torn on some level, right? So. I think yeah. it's also the appeal of, like, in the hands of a good writer, like, the crime is being committed, how cleverly has it been written? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah, Because yeah. the, 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 the mind of a writer to produce a convincing, you know, caper is is beyond my understanding. Like, you know, it's like, you could almost swear that something they could probably plan and actually execute in real life. And they're like, that could have worked. I could see that working. Yeah. It's plausible. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, there's something to be said for skill, cleverness of execution. Yeah. Um, for me personally, and there's, you know, a thousand billion ways to, to write a good story. Um, for me personally, a lot of the things that stick out are kind of along the same lines of what we're saying, but I guess in more detail, it is that sort of existential moral ambiguity. When you have a crime story, and I guess I'm more of a fan of like noirish type things, Mm -hmm. but when you have a crime story, um usually somewhere along the line, something in the environment or in the characters is broken. When you have a crime or some necessity for a crime to take place, some link in the chain has been broken. Either there's a pathology or there is just an evil person or maybe an evil system or you're part of a system where everyone else is broken and you just have to choose the lesser of two evils and you get into... um, this situation where these characters operate in a moral scale that is different than what we would consider uh, normal for for the rest of us. And there's always this tension between what we consider a normal moral standard for society, I guess, and then this other sort of gray area that, that these characters, whatever their story may be, this other area that these characters have to operate in. But whatever it is, they judge their own morality a lot differently than we judge it. So looking at, for me, what's always fascinating and what makes for a really great story is something that um, explores the nuances and the different layers and levels that these characters are making decisions under because people are not as easily uh, classified or classifiable, Mm -hmm. I think, as we would like to think. Um, we like to think of things in very comfortable, compartmentalized, black and white terms. Um, 
but often moral decision making is is not that it's it's messy even even um from a non-criminal perspective we have to make decisions in our own lives a lot of times that we're not really sure which which way is right or which way is the lesser of two evils and i think sort of looking at that in the context of crime fiction amplifies that that moral gray area what what do you do when you have a choice not between good and bad but between terrible and less terrible right what do you do with a choice like that um and and how do these characters learn about themselves or what do they learn about themselves from that um seeing people kind of wrestle through that is fascinating because we don't usually we're not usually operating at those extremes you know yeah i think you articulated a lot of the same sentiments that i have about crime fiction because i'm also a big fan of noir and one of the defining characteristics of noir i think um I mean, obviously, there's stuff like mood and and how how the aesthetics of it, the the darkness and the the lighting and and all the visual aspects. But I think with noir in fiction, um, even whether it's prose or comics, I think the the characteristics of dark and light in the characters themselves is something that draws me to to this genre. Um, I forget where I read it, but I I once heard noir uh, defined as stories that are about... They're either about one of two things. It's either about a good person doing something bad for the right reason, or it's about a bad person doing something good for the wrong reason. (laughs) (laughs) That's a a really accurate description. Yeah. That, That definitely resonates with me. Yeah. I mean, that... That's just a way to sum up all the complicated and and you know the complexity of the of the as- story aspects that you just described. But yeah, that's that's what I, I like about crime fiction. Um, anyway, Shanus, is there anything else you wanted to say about Road to Perdition? Uh, no, I mean I was supposed to give a, a synopsis, which I did, and then it kind of pulled it into the question you asked. Um, I don't want to hook up too much time about this before we. Yeah. I think that was a pretty good. I think we we covered it pretty adequately, well, yeah. more than adequately, like in great detail. Yeah, that's sweet. All right, moving on. Albert, I see you excited to talk about your selection, man. You've been pouring <laughs> over those pages. Well, I mean, I've I've been looking over um, my choice, but <clears throat> so today my choice for crime fiction, and uh, is going to be Joker by Brian Azzarello. And uh, drawn by Lee Bermejo. Inks by Mick Gray. Le- the letterer is Robert Clark. And colorist is Patricia Mulhill. The funny thing is, up until a moment ago, even before the mic got transferred to you, I only just realized that that was your choice for crime fiction. <laughs> <laughs> well, I try not to put it out there, if only because I'd like this to be a surprise to all I of us. I honestly thought this whole time you're just like reading the joke because it's, it's just a great story by... Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's it. I was just like, oh, that's. I was like, so flipping through it for the past well, like 15, 20 minutes. So I think you've sort of uh, hit on something that I wanted to discuss about this before uh, I, I go into it in greater detail. But so in trying to choose a book for crime fiction, I it was a little hard for me because I wanted to choose something that was that didn't have any superhero element to it 
Uh, <laughs> you ended up taking the Joker. <laughs> yeah, well, but you know that, that's I, I, I you, I that's where the conflict was, right? Yeah. So I I, but upon reviewing like the different books that I could have chosen, like I I really do feel that <clears throat> this is something that embodies crime fiction pretty well. Yeah. Um, and I can the argument that I would make for it is um is that it's so so before i so i'm going to tie it up into the the basic premise of the book but um so the joker is clearly based on dc comics the joker but he's not really the main character of the story and uh when you look at this story batman's not even really in it as much as a character as much as he is a presence right mm-hmm. uh and the thing that makes this uh a crime story in my opinion is the fact that the perspective of the story is taken from a two-bit hood by the name of johnny frost and the opening uh the opening of the story starts out with the joker it, well actually the opening of the story starts out with these criminals in a bar sitting around talking about someone has to go pick up the joker and they're all terrified of the idea of going to go to go to Arkham Asylum to go pick up the Joker as he's being released, and Johnny Frost, being a lowlife who sees this as an opportunity to move up in the world, takes it upon himself to go. I'll go pick him up. I'll be his driver, and I'll get in good with this guy, and he'll bring me with him. He'll take me places. Is basically his idea. So. <laughs> you think that's luck. a funny idea, Zach? Yeah, I think that's really funny. Good well, luck. Well, that's the thing, though, right? So, um, so Brian Azzarello is so okay. Uh, so, so Johnny Frost. So the perspective of the story is taken from uh, this this low level gangster Johnny Frost, who uh, goes to go pick up the Joker, and as the story progresses, you'll see him kind of go from being in awe of his stature as it increases to a point where he realizes that the Joker is just an absolute monstrosity. And and so I feel, uh, yeah, and ultimately culminating in, uh, I guess you could call it a tragic end, but... Um, before... <laughs> but I'd like Zach to go... Was laughing. <laughs> I, I just would expect nothing less from a Joker story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This classic Joker. But I'd like to go into detail a little bit. Uh, so Brian Azzarello is... Uh, a, he's actually really well known for his crime fiction. One of the biggest stories that he's ever... Uh, <clears throat> that he's associated with is 100 Bullets that he also did with DC Comics. Yeah. And it's it's this really long-form crime story. And so uh, he, he, he's got a good feel for noir. And he also has a really interesting way of playing with or capturing the way that people talk um so definitely the 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 voices that he gives to each of the individual characters in the comics are all very unique and all very stylized and to some degree realistic you know it's it's not like 70s or 80s dialogue where it's like yo man what's going on me and my crew be doing this that <laughs> you mean like jive speak or whatever you know just ridiculous like you know whatever however you imagined you know gang members to talk in the 80s or whatever right <laughs> yo that's not cool bro 
Is that side swag <laughs> in the 70s well, in like 80s comics 80s is what i'm thinking did they use swag back then no probably not but it wouldn't surprise me if it's in there somewhere but um the way that the thing that i really liked about this book is the way that uh Brian Azzarello doesn't really... So the way that most people perceive the Joker as we've known him in comics, in all other comics, uh, all other Batman comics, is he's either insane or he's a supervillain. Yeah, that's pretty much it. But the way that Brian Azzarello portrays the Joker in this particular book is he portrays him as insane, but he's also essentially the leader of a gang, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So he's like calculating. Yeah, he's calculating, and like his his insanity and his viciousness is are all the tools of his trade that allow him to maintain power over his criminal organization. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, yeah. So as the story progresses, you're viewing uh, this guy who who's watching, who who sees this as an opportunity to raise himself in the ranks and kind of sidle up to the different levers of power that are being made accessible to him. And I, I, I just want to go over like some of the dialogue, um, that, that, uh, Brian has Dude, I love writes. this part of the show, man. Albert's going to do these voices. They're going to be great. They're going to love it. <laughs> My name is Johnny Frost. <laughs> you don't know me, but all I want. <laughs> Why does he sound like a Midwestern yokel? <laughs> That's how he sounds. That's how this hardened inner city gangster sounds in my head. That's not how they talk. Sounds like a muffin. <laughs> Guys! It's like Fred Durst like had too much caffeine. And that's... It's all about the he said, she said! <laughs> oh my gosh. Are you going to read the whole thing like that? <laughs> no, no, no. I could do an hour of this. <laughs> so... So the scene is right after Johnny Frost has picked up the Joker, and the Joker is kind of making his rounds, reestablishing himself with all of the criminals in his empire that were holding his place until his return. Mm-hmm. And this is Johnny Frost's inner, inner monologue. My name is Johnny Frost. You don't know me, but all my life I knew you would. That I'd do something, be somebody, that you'd know and take notice a big man, front row seats, nice suits, my own booth, at the toniest restaurant in town, somebody. Not some two-bit hood hustling small potatoes wouldn't satisfy a starving Irishman. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but that's that's basically the, the summation of his uh, inner monologue. And I think it's, it's a good way... Brian Azzarella does a good job of capturing like this guy's inner voice and I don't really want to give away too much of the story but essentially it's about the Joker reasserting himself amongst all of his rivals while while he's been away in prison and this guy who who really doesn't know what he's gotten himself into until he's he's basically just in too deep yeah mm-hmm. and like 
Would it be in bad taste if I just did ruin it? No. He's <laughs> like, nah, no, no spoilers. I, wanna, I, mean, I kinda want to spoil it, but I kinda don't. Or... Given given it's a recommendation though. Yeah. For people who haven't that's read true. It before. Yeah. yeah. Is okay. there a way to talk about what you what get, what gets you excited about it? Well, okay, okay, here, it? here. I'll I'll just go about this. So so again, this is a Batman comic without Batman and Eventually, you know, Joker Joker has this rise to power and he he reclaims all of his his uh, territory but not without a lot of wanton chaos and destruction and because it's a Batman comic, eventually the the specter of Batman is constantly hovering over them and just the very like end of the book like it's not a huge like it, yeah, it's not a huge scene that you see. It's not spectacular in any way but it really gives you the sense of just menace and uh this feeling of it it really almost puts you in the mind of this criminal to know that to know what it's like to have this being constantly haunting you while you're trying to make your wages in a life of crime essentially yeah, I, 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 would okay. you say it's it's haunting for the Joker or haunting for Johnny Frost, or both? I think it's uh, that's the interesting thing. Um, it's a pretty down. Yeah, it's it's. I I'd say that it's a resigned ending for Johnny Frost, and it's haunting for the Joker. Hmm. It, it's it's a lot of resignation in the sense that. Again, back to our previous conversation about what makes a good crime story, it, it, that this idea that you're rooting for him, but at the same time, you understand that these are terrible people you're rooting for, you know? So it's... it's like within the context of the story. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So so there is this understanding uh, once you get to the you know very end of the book that this is just kind of their lives. The, this is... There, there is no real sense of salvation for them in this like bleak and ugly world, and this is this is the best that they'll ever get. Essentially, is is kind of the feeling that you're left with when mm-hmm. this is all over. Mm-hmm. Um, if uh, and in order to 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 uh, to go over it in a little greater detail, I also wanted to talk about Libra Mejo's art. So Libra Mejo does this really like detailed art style i like i don't know is it painted it's not painted is it or the cover is painted the cover's painted um the interior is yeah um, yeah, colored traditionally yeah Yeah. standard so the thing about his art style is it's there's a lot of heavy or like thin line work and the shading is like pretty atmospheric It, it adds a lot to just the darkness of the overall story and uh i'd say it's pretty realistic um just an interesting side note: the uh, there is a little backstory about this version of the Joker. At, this comic came out around the time of the Dark Knight, uh, the Dark Knight movie, the, the starring Christian Bale and uh, Heath Ledger. Heath Ledger, yeah. and it was uh, I don't know if it's really a controversy, but they did there was some uh, some news that this version of the Joker looked eerily similar to the version of the Joker that came out in Heath Ledger's 
Batman movie, and that movie came out, I think, it might have come out before this book, but I think Lee Bermejo was working on this book before that movie came out. Yeah. So it was, it was like a pretty weird coincidence. Huh. Yeah. So if you think of, so when you look at the Joker in this book, he is similar to the Heath Ledger Joker in the sense that. I think the biggest thing that you recognize is that this Joker's smile is carved into his face. So, uh, uh, so where his lips would naturally end, uh, on, where where a person's lips naturally ends on their face, there's a jagged scar on both sides that extends it into like just this really nasty and vicious smile. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't really speak too much else for the art other than it's just really gritty and really dark and I think yeah. it's it's uh, I, I want to say that this book came out before the movie did but I can't yeah. be certain without looking it up yeah I forget as well um, but yeah definitely uh, Lee Bermejo came up with this on his own he didn't have access he didn't to steal anything it from yeah anything. yeah yeah, and I don't even know if the people who were working on the movie might have seen his sketches or anything like that. It's just a weird coincidence. It's a really weird coincidence. Yeah, and the other thing that's strange, uh, several years before he did this comic, he did uh, Absolute, or he did a comic called uh, Luthor, Man of Steel, which was basically a very similar type of story that focused on Lex Luthor yeah. um, as the main character, and it was also written by Azarello. And it was also drawn by Lieber, yeah. Yeah, uh, and and Lieber Mayho in in that book when he drew Superman, he gave Superman an interesting uh, quirk in his design where the S shield on his chest, uh, the S was a little bit raised, like it it wasn't just sewn into the threads, but it was part of a material that kind of raised it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like a couple like, like an emblem, like an emblem. Yeah, yeah, and. That book came out a little bit before Superman, uh, Superman Returns. Returns. Huh. If they you look ended at, up doing that. Yeah, if you look at <laughs> Superman Returns, that's how oh, Superman Super looks like that. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if I don't know if the movie took its influence from uh, Bermejo's art, yeah. but, but again, that's just a weird thing to maybe, think about. Yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe there's some low key fans in the costume department. Maybe it could be. It. Maybe. Yeah. I will say that I've been looking at uh, across over here at uh, Albert's copy of it in the. Uh, the artwork is fantastic. It's very um, cinematic, the way that the lighting is used. Yeah. Um, there's a really good balance between uh, darks and then, you know, like spotting large areas of darks balanced off against, uh, contrasted with those um, really finer detailed uh, places. So everything's really clear. You never get lost. But at the same time, there's this uh, element of, I almost want to call it hyperrealism that, that takes you into the story but then kind of like an el- to an elevated reality that's a little bit beyond what we normally live in it's uh it's kind of an exaggerated uh, mm. version of it but it just it all feels you know just like we've been saying very real very gritty yeah um the composition and you know just a lot of the panels on the pages are just like they, it's almost like they don't want to sit fully in the frames yeah. they're almost coming right off the page at you it has really big uh almost larger-than-life kind of feel. I was going to say larger-than-life, kind of like the Joker is as a character, even it, in the Batman universe. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So so all these characters, not just the Joker, but, they're, you know, there's, like, the big, like, thug or, like, hooded guy that, like, follows him around. And it's, you know, all these guys are just, like, they feel like larger-than-life characters uh, in the book. Yeah. Here's a question. 
What what makes <coughs> Joker by Az and Bermejo more of a crime story than any other Joker comic that we've seen in the past mm. up to this point? Good question. So, uh, like I was um, mentioning before, uh, I do feel that the fact that the story is told from the perspective of this criminal as opposed to the Joker himself, um, his perspective is one where it could be that of any low-level gangster working his way through the ranks and he just happens to embrace this one particular gang lord the fa- and again it's the way that Brian Azzarello portrays the Joker not as a supervillain or not as a purely insane individual but he's the leader of a criminal organization like the story is about the Joker reasserting his control over his empire while he was in in Arkham Asylum. So if you kind of step away from the Joker that you know and just look at it purely on on that uh level, it's it's a story about a, a yeah, a, about a criminal a, a gang leader who's uh using his his insanity and his ferocity and his wilds to, again, um, take control or re- retake control of his empire. Like, uh, we mentioned earlier that uh, for crime fiction, like, if, if we're looking at the definition that we came up with as a genre of fiction that focuses on criminals, crime, or crime detection uh, and their motives as a basis of the story, that's pretty much that right there. Like, the fact that Johnny Frost is, you know, seeing that that portion that I read earlier where, you know, he talks about how he comes in with the Joker and he wants to be a somebody and how he wants everyone in the world to recognize him and he doesn't want to just be a low-level hustler. Like, that's... Again, that that goes back to this idea that this could just this could very much be a crime story, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, back to an earlier idea that we were discussing, where part of it also uh, the, the another part that makes for a good crime story is there are elements of planning i guess that you would say uh, like in some cases it's a heist but uh, in this story there's a moment where they end up where where basically the joker has reasserted control over a good a sizable portion of his empire but he runs up against two-face and two-face is basically unhappy with the fact that the joker is has come back and is interfering with his business. So naturally, there's going to be a gang war between these two, these two powers, yeah. and the culmination of that fight between the two, it, it's simple, but at the same time, it makes a lot of sense, and it's something where, just by watching it, or or just by reading those particular scenes, you're kind of blown away by. It's true to the Joker as a character. Like mm-hmm. again, although uh, if you step away from this story and the Joker that you know, on the one hand, it's it's a story just about you know a criminal mastermind. But on the other hand, the fact that the way that he planned this this battle between him and Two Face and the the way that it played out, that's also very true to the Joker. So he, he's able to weave these two things and make it very true. You've said often in the past, Drew, that um, 
the best stories work when you tell stories where only that character could be in that story and that's that's what makes it true to that character right mm-hmm. well he does this thing here where he doesn't necessarily distance this version of the joker from the joker he tells he weaves the joker that we know with the reality of this joker that he's created does yeah. that make sense I think so. Yeah. So it's still the Joker that we know in the sense that he's insane. <laughs> yeah. But this Joker just embodies a different reality in which he's also a gang leader. You know? It's yeah. probably an aspect of the character that we don't often think about too much. Yeah. We, often, we always see him yeah. in other comics or cartoons or, or things, sto- other stories where he's always got flunkies and his own goons, yeah. but... You never really think what would motivate a man to join up with the Joker's gang. Yeah, I, you know, I used to think that when I watched the cartoon, yeah. like the old uh, <coughs> Bruce Tim cartoon when I was a kid. Because yep. yeah. you know, you'd see the henchmen and I'd laugh when I saw them because to me they're always comical. But it's just like, well, how how did they get there? Like, how, what do you have to do <laughs> to like join the Joker's, uh, you know, criminal yeah. underworld or whatever? Back to the comic though, one thing you said that really nailed it for me. Um, about being true to the Joker, like who the Joker is as a character. That's one thing I love most about that story is that you can you can see not just um, how things play out for Frost, but yeah, I'm seeing that too. You can see uh, not just how things play out for Frost, but how it how it reflects on how the Joker operates yeah, and, and yeah. who he is. Yeah. There, there's always this principle of you know, subverting people's expectations yeah. or, or taking what you think you know or the plan that you think you have yeah. and flipping it on its head yeah, so, yeah, that yeah, it, yeah. so that it doesn't work. Yeah. And um, I think the the whole book and the way it's written on many levels is a really, really good encapsulation of that. Yeah. I, I, I do like the point that Drew made, which was, yeah, again, we often see him, like, when he is kind of stealing money, he's just kind of it's sort of cartoony, right? It's like, oh, bags of cash with dollar signs on them. Yes. Or, or like, his motivations are just purely as an agent of chaos, just meant to, you know, be destructive. But the idea of him as, you know, the head of a criminal empire is not something that writers focus on too often, you know? Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I do think that Brian Azzarello took an element of the Joker and pushed it for emphasis and that's what makes this story or, or that's at least i think that's what makes this a crime story yeah and i i think that's why it's it's a fitting crime story and uh, and i recommend it because it's pretty self-contained it's not you know part of an, a long-running epic it's something that you can get and you can read and it's 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 an enjoyable experience in it of itself. It was an original graphic novel. Yeah. So that that means it was, uh, it's an ex- extended length story that was originally published, you know, as its own ent- entity, not being serialized yeah. in, in any comics. And I think it was aimed to be released around the time that Batman movie came out so that people who were interested in reading about the Joker would yeah. have some product yeah. that they could buy in a comic book store. But I think it's... For what they put out in the movie, for the version of the Joker that we saw in the movie, I do think 
Not not that that should be the only motivation oh, for yeah. why you would want to see the Joker or like, but I do think it's a pretty fortuitous thing to release because anyone who read this because it's marketing and timing. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. For what I was gonna say was for anyone who was looking for a Joker to, story to read while the movie was coming out, this is a heck of a Joker story to read. Yeah, you know, it's it's. I don't like saying that it's like adult or mature because it sounds a little pretentious, but it is, and but in a good <laughs> Wait, way. It's pretentious or it's adult and mature. <laughs> um, it's pretentious, you know, to make it sound like oh, it's it's this isn't for kids. It's so. Well, would you give this to a kid? No, <laughs> this is not something that I would give to a kid. Yeah. What about the kid of somebody whose parents you didn't like? Yeah, sure. <laughs> oh, okay. 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 And that is my review of the Joker. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, well, I guess we'll save Zach for last since the best has to save us to carry it through the end of the show. All so. lies, all lies. Just, um, well, not really alphabetical order, but still. <laughs> so my name starts with a Z. I'm just going last. <laughs> all right, so my recommendation is a comic called Scene of the Crime. This is a comic written by Ed Brubaker, penciled by Michael Lark, inked by Sean Phillips, colored by James Sinclair, lettered by John Costanza. It was originally published by Vertigo Comics, but it was also a creator-owned book by Ed Brubaker and Michael Lark. So if you look for it now, um, you'll find it at Image Comics. So several episodes ago when we were doing our countdown for the Marvel Top 25, we talked a little bit about Criminal, which was uh, a comic by Brubaker and Sean Phillips. In this comic here, Scene of the Crime, I believe it is their first collaboration uh, like I said, Michael Lark is the penciler of this comic, but Sean Phillips did ink it. So he, well, he inked three out of the four issues. So you'll see his his uh, his handprint uh, throughout. One of the things that Brubaker is known for, obviously, is is his crime comics, especially uh, noir and hard boiled kind of crime stories. And this comic, scene of the crime, is kind of your prototypical uh, crime noir story. It's about a private detective who takes on the case of a missing person and ends up finding more than he expected. So it's got your, it's got a pretty typical setup, uh, but it it goes into really grim places and doesn't do it for the sake of shock value, but it, it does it to show you what kind of seedy business uh, the people that he's investigating are involved in. Um, cool thing about it is it actually takes place in San Francisco. Oh, Ooh, nice. nice. Yeah, so I, I always get a kick out of that, and it actually does feel like a San Francisco that is familiar. It doesn't... I mean, is it photorealistic? I don't know if I would go that far, but it's not ridiculous. Mm. You know, it, it wasn't anything where I felt like the characters were traveling from... Landmark to landmark. Landmark to landmark, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it just felt like it happened to take place in the city. That's that's where it was, but it wasn't a big, a really big deal or anything. Um, what I really like about the comic is the, the tone of it. I'm a really big fan of that hard-boiled noir sort of, sort of prose. I'm, I'm a fan of crime fiction writers like... Uh, Ross McDonald and Raymond Chandler, uh, 
I've only read The Maltese Falcon from Dashiell Hammett, but, uh, you know, books like that, um, The Postman Always Rings Twice, just classics from from the 40s, 50s, and 60s, like those old-school pulp uh, detective novels. I'm, I just enjoy that kind yeah. of writing. And I can tell that Brubaker enjoys that, too. Actually, uh, I remember... Uh, when I met him briefly at a at a signing at a store in the past, he was the the guy who told me about Ross McDonald, and that's why I ended up checking out Ross McDonald that's and cool. reading a bunch of his novels. But if you read uh, Brubaker's stuff, you definitely get that that sense of uh, just that yeah, just that tone, that kind of rhythmic, uh, fatalistic, and I don't know if it's pessimistic or cynical, but just that sort of dark tone that's associated with that kind of writing. Um, the artwork is Michael Lark and Sean Phillips, so it's very realistic. These guys are masters of composition and mood. Uh, they draw people that have realistic facial expressions and realistic uh, body language. Yeah, You can... I think... What's really useful is that a story like this where it's about a guy who's actually trying to solve a mystery, there's a lot of time spent talking to people, um, just meeting people face-to-face, talking to them, interviewing them. So there's not a whole ton of you know dynamic action, but it's just two people sitting in a room having a conversation. And if you're able to illustrate that in a way that continues to intrigue the reader uh, visually and, and stimulate the reader. Like, that's not an easy thing to accomplish at all. Yeah. Because the lazy thing to do is just be to use, like, the same talking couple heads. panels, talking heads over yeah. and over. You know, yeah. you see that in, in all sorts of comics all the time. But, like, the different angles and the... You know, he makes it... He draws it so that when people are just having a stakeout in a car, there's a, there's a sense of tension. You know, he... Uh, the camera moves around uh, from panel to panel as they're investigating and, and watching whatever they're looking at. And y- you really feel uh, like you're in the car with the private eye as he's during, doing his investigation. The other thing about it is that the, the mystery itself, it plays fair. Um, it doesn't cheat the reader. Yeah. You, all of the clues... Um, are there for you if you're able to pick them up. I mean, obviously, my first time reading this, I was just devouring it as a story. I wasn't really trying to solve the mystery. I mean, if you're the type that likes to solve mysteries as you read, you know, you're going to have a a fun time with this. Um, But I really like how everything does get resolved, but there's never a point where he just drops something on you and you're just like, wait... Where did that come from? You know, like that, like you never feel cheated because yeah. the story is written in first person perspective, like so many other great classic detective novels. So everything that you learn is what the main character learns as he's learning about it himself. Yeah. So all all the knowledge you have is is the same knowledge he has, and that that's what makes the mystery work. Yeah, I definitely appreciate that. That's actually making me want to read that really yeah. bad. I am one of those people who tends to try and solve things as I see them. Mm. Um, I don't know why. My, my <laughs> mind just tends to work that way. It's it's kind of annoying, actually, because most times I'll be watching <laughs> yeah. a movie, and I will have figured out 
most of the middle and probably a little bit of the end before I see it. Like, I can tell where it's headed. Yeah. But if you can hold the reader's interest, like Drew was saying, mm-hmm. especially just with um, just being fair with, like, dialogue yeah. and not sort of cheating us out of the meat of the story, which yeah. if these people are private eyes, they're not going to be doing, you know, car chases and blowing things yeah, yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. You know, you, it's a realistic <laughs> depiction <laughs> yeah. of, like, detective work or, yeah. you know, realer this depiction of it yeah a lot of that work is you know just beating your feet and hitting yeah. the street and like you know talking to people yeah taking yeah. notes in your notepad and you mm-hmm. know getting facts so yeah i i have a deep appreciation of that a good mystery is hard to come by because so often like so often what ends up happening is we do get a cheat which was he had a twin brother we didn't know about <laughs> or or something it's, that, that just comes one. out of left field, you know? It was, it was uh, multiple personality. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I've seen a couple of those, you know? Yeah. So it's uh, in order, it, it takes a writer who has like a great amount of attention to detail to be able to plot in a way that's so deliberate that the clues are there, but at the same time, they're hidden just enough so that you still have to earn it as a reader. Yeah. It's yeah. kind of... Yeah. I don't know if the exact name of that literary technique is called hiding things in plain view, but that's basically what you have to do. Yeah. You're kind of like dropping breadcrumbs throughout the yeah. story, but mm-hmm. you're just you're only revealing just enough. So yeah. very fine line. It takes a high, high level of skill to pull off. Yeah, and the other thing that uh, I'm pretty sure you'll enjoy, Zach, if you check this out, is not only do you get a satisfying mystery to solve, but... Uh, a big draw of of this story to me is also the fact that it's it's not just about why was this crime committed, but it's or it's not just about how this crime was committed, but it's why was this crime committed, and mm. you get you do get some you know th- that I guess psychological insight into the mind of desperate people. Yeah. Uh, you know what what could drive somebody, what could motivate somebody to commit this crime um and like like i said i'm I'm i don't want to spoil anything about it but it starts off as a missing persons case basically uh this woman comes up to the detective the the main character is his name is jack so this this lady goes up to jack and basically has a missing persons case about her about her missing sister and he gets embroiled in something that he didn't expect to find um and it and it turns out to not only is it a mystery for him to solve uh, a, cr- a crime that he has to solve, but it's also something that um, kind of hits him on a personal level. So there's there's also that emotional content too. It's it's not just a methodical uh, procedural about solving a mystery, but it's also a story about uh, character growth and and character development, which is something that. You may not necessarily uh, demand from your detective fiction, but I, I find it as a really nice bonus to see mm-hmm. that sort of progress and that growth and insight into the character's mentality. Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely when there's that emotional connection and you kind of empathize with the character and you're you're feeling what he's feeling or going through that journey with him, mm-hmm. um, that can only serve the story, you know? That can only kind of pull you in a little bit more. Yeah. So definitely, well done. Well yeah. done. Yeah, it's a really meaty story. Uh, it, it's it's pretty dense actually. Like not dense as in overly wordy, but 
there's a lot of panels per page. You know, there's panels with with eight, twelve uh, pages with eight or twelve panels and mm. a, plenty of dialogue, but it, it never feels like there's just words just so just to take up space. <laughs> right. You know, like it everything serves the the flow of the story. Um, there's a lot of he divides it into different chapters. So so instead of just having your 22 page issue be one entire chapter he'll have like this book is uh let me see it's technically 22 21 chapters plus an epilogue and you know these chapters can be anywhere from like three to five pages or so so he just kind of gives you like different all these different scenes as the story progresses um and i want to pull off an albert right here and just read a an excerpt that <laughs> really resonated with me nice <laughs> nice and this is just an example of of the writing that Brubaker did on this comic that really captured the that hard-boiled noir tone. So this is this is the main character Jack his inner monologue. He says, "I've often wondered how Newt lives with what he does, capturing the final truth of death. Newt is uh his uncle that that he lives with, who's a crime scene photographer." The last glance of hope snuffed out. He's seen so many over the years that it must be staggering. But I'd seen those goodbye looks myself recently, in the eyes of Maggie and her father, and, the, and in the eyes of others before, and I knew that those eyes wear you down. So I didn't ask Newt about, what it, about it because I was worried that he might not have an easy answer. Burdens are never easy to carry, and those of us who are truly haunted can never really hide it. The past always finds a way to sneak back up on you like an endless circle. And sometimes, hopefully not often, that circle is a circle of violence. Maggie had just wanted something simple, just a little piece of the good night she had never gotten as a child. What she found was a complicated mess of emotions and anger, a whole family torn apart by its past. It wasn't a unique tragedy by any means, but it was still a tragedy. Just some poignant writing right there. Yeah, well done. Yeah, really well done. So who's the artist for this again? Michael Lark. Michael He's the Lark. penciler, and Sean Phillips inked it. Yeah, yeah, as you're flipping through it, and uh, I'm seeing the artwork there, I mean, first of all, one, obviously it's really good. Two, going back to what you were saying uh, a minute ago about it being slightly dense, um, one thing that might help for uh, newer readers or someone who's just getting into it, um, try not to think of it in those terms, but just pay attention to the pacing as you're reading the story mm -hmm. because there's a reason for the way the panels uh, are set up the way that they are. So if you happen to run across a page where there's a lot of panels, go ahead and read it. Don't pay attention to how many panels you're reading. Yeah. Pay attention to how the story feels and then go back and look at it. That's what I do too, actually. Like, <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. I don't have like the greatest attention span sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> so like... In order for me to like kind of contain all that information, I'd much rather like do one a once over where I'm actually reading the dialogue, or like like in this example here, there there are even examples where you have people talking. There are even examples where you have people talking as well as the narrative that's going on on top of that, and then you have the pictures to look at as well. So I'll I'll try to like 
read through the narratives uh, or the dialogue first, and then I'll go through again on that same page, on that same read. I'll, I'll go over the, uh, the the actual narration boxes, and then I'll look over the pictures, and then my brain will just put that all together and assemble it so that I can yeah. understand it all in that one instance. Yeah, You're like a yeah. computer mathematically calculating... Or an idiot. (laughs) 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 Who can't just process it all in one go. (laughs) It's just the the thing to keep in mind uh, when you're you're reading or when you're going through these things um, is there's a kind of mechanics that that works itself out on the page. Mm -hmm. Um, In comics, um, time is space, and space is kind of time as well. So the, the illustrator or the artist is basically, in a sense, controlling the timing or the beats at which you're recreating the scene in your head. So, yeah, just give it a quick read-through. Just read it and then go back and pay attention to what that pacing is because mm. there's a reason why the panels are set up, say, on a 6 by 6 or like a 9 by 9 grid. Um, all those beats are supposed to read in a certain way. If you're if you're watching a movie, in a sense, it's the same thing, but it's it's obviously in a different medium. So some things may move slower, some things may move faster. Um, in comics, the way it's drawn kind of dictates, in some sense, it's the way that it's supposed to move or the way that it's supposed to be read. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well done. Well said. Shanice, did you ever read this? I did, yeah. What are your thoughts on this comic? I... Uh... I think it was might have been one of my first detective stories written in uh, comic book format or crime stories. I like the fact that it was set in San Francisco. Yeah. Um, that was fun. It was very disturbing. It, I, actually, when we talked about this before, I'll go, I went, this was a reminiscent to me of Chinatown as a movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because there are a lot of similar, very similar elements that have to play a part in this. Um, but I think it also might have been my introduction to uh, Ed Brubaker as well. Um, I thought it was great. It's short in a sense of like what a story could be in terms of pages and length, but it's just absolutely very, very sweet in terms of like, it hits all the right notes. Which yeah. mean, it's like, it's, it's one of the comic books that I wish was actually made into a movie because it's short enough that you could fit everything in there and just the way it's written and conveyed to screen without having to lose too much information. Yeah, that's yeah. a good point. Yeah. Mm. And then um, just just the atmosphere too. Yeah. The the way those interactions between the characters are shot, I feel like that'd be really interesting to see. <clears throat> Definitely. And it'd be cool if they actually filmed it in San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> but it, also, I like I like the. Um, I guess he's a private investigator. Like his mm-hmm. like. How he evolves as a character. Like at first, he's just kind of like, eh, um, just another private investigator pill him money to cap to you know catch them in the act of doing something stupid like uh breaking the vows of marriage and blah 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 blah, blah. and then slowly he he gets more and more into this and it's like it's almost to the point like it becomes a personal quest yeah 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 that's how like a lot of noirs are kind of set up it's a lot of the times you have like these broken heroes or yeah. you know, who start out who at some point in li- their life they were good at their job but due to circumstances they've fallen on hard times and as a method of like coping with um, their circumstances they're just they've become hardened people but yeah. deep down inside you know the if you if it's a good pulp like you're able to convey or show that moment when they become 
Or where they redeem themselves, or where they They're become like that tarnished angels. Yeah, yeah, mm. the bastard with a heart of gold. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There is that sort of element. Um, I mean, obviously the moral tension, but then also that sort of interplay of like that small little sliver of light in the darkness, and you're kind of always kind of pulling yeah. for it, but you maybe never quite get there. Yeah, those are great detective stories. Yeah. Yep, that was scene of the crime by. Ed Brubaker, Michael yeah. Lark, and Sean Phillips. You just made me want to do my, like, my noir detective voice. Yeah, see? Oh, let's do it, dude. Yeah, see? You thought you could pull one over on me, did you? You should take a page here and, and just read the dialogue in that voice. She was a she was a long-legged dame with legs from here to yeah, yeah. Here to where now? Yeah, yeah. What's yeah, yeah? Yeah, yeah, like, you know, just a fictional place that yeah. makes it sound far. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> just like You're a, not going to catch me, Kappa! <laughs> 30s, like, exaggerated gangster voice. <laughs> All right, Zach, what do you got for us? All right, um, my pick was uh, a great, maybe sort of lesser-known piece of work called Beware the Creeper by uh, Jason Hall and Cliff Chang. Uh, Jason Hall being the writer, <laughs> Cliff Chang being the artist, uh, colored by the venerable Dave Stewart. Oh yeah, that dude is great. That that guy's actually a legend. He's he's yeah. a big name in comics. Um, letterer John Workman. I don't. Dude, another legend. He did uh, Thor for Walt Simonson. Oh, did he? Yeah. Ooh. Yeah, I, I don't know his name as well. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, and then Cliff Chang on some additional uh, cover art and some of the stuff on the inside. Um, so this one, I would recommend. I'll start off with why I would recommend it, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, I would recommend because it is uh, kind of a standalone title. Um, it's sort of a one-and-done, like, self-contained story. Um, and it is kind of a good microcosm of, of some of the elements that you would run across in crime fiction. Um, there is, obviously, the element of crime. There's the element of investigation. There is those. There are those levels of uh, moral ambiguity or um, moral gray areas that we were talking about before. Um, also, there's all the stuff with the nuance, with the characters having to make tough decisions as the situations that they're in sort of become darker and darker. They have their choices in terms of choosing between good and bad get more and more complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so all that moral tension is there, uh, but you never, you never get lost, or there's not really a point where you're trying to figure out what's happening in the story. You just, you become engrossed in the story, and it's one of the ones. It's kind of a page turner. You just don't want to put it down. Um, as for giving it a brief synopsis, it's fairly simple. Um, there are two sisters. The sisters are twins, and something happens to one of them. Um, one of them is uh, assaulted and, and murdered in her home. And so this investigator... Well, that's a pleasant way to begin a story. <laughs> <laughs> it's crime fiction. It's crime fiction, folks. So this investigator uh, named Elaine has to... is hired or brought in, basically, um, to to solve this mystery of, of who committed this crime. Um However, over the course of trying to solve this, soon after this crime is committed, this character called the Creeper pops up, and this character has 
you know, this really garish outfit, like bright green with with these red plumes um, of something that looks a little bit like feathers or something for hair, like peacock feathers or something. And this character is kind of a uh, prankster slash chaos kind of character. So as the investigator is trying to determine who committed the crime, also he's trying to determine who is this creeper character and how is the creeper connected to the crime that happened since the creeper comes into the scene almost immediately or a, a little bit after the the crime is committed so he's trying to like make connections um over the course of this happening the pranks that the the creeper is committing become increasingly more severe um it starts out kind of funny kind of haha and then kind of a little more serious but still kind of funny and then at one point like um someone's baby gets stolen and they have to find it like on, on a statue or something, which is quite a bit more serious thing. Um, the baby wasn't kidnapped. Why, why like... does that make you laugh, Albert? <laughs> <laughs> I like watching babies get hurt. <laughs> oh, wow. All right. You confronted me with the truth, and I spat it back in your face. <laughs> your face! <laughs> you got me? You got me? Um, no further questions, Your Honor? <laughs> He couldn't handle the truth. <laughs> you couldn't handle it. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's one example. But there's there's other examples as well of uh, the creeper doing escalating uh, more more intense things until right at the end of the story, um, it becomes actually like a, a life or death situation, like a life threatening situation, and all these these threads of these different characters who are involved in this. Uh, not just not just the sister and the investigator, but there's other people, there's other townspeople as well, uh, who are all connected. It's set in uh, 1920s uh, Paris, so this is you know around the time where surrealism is really big, and um, I think it's just before um, avant-garde kind of thing came about. So a little nod to art history, which to myself I definitely appreciated that they were talking about uh, Dali and. Andre Breton and um, a lot of the crazy antics that the surrealists would pull, which incidentally later on I think inspired a lot of the deadest as well. Anyway, get, getting back to the story, um, so that's that's a basic synopsis of what happens. Um, but what you see at, over the course of the story, as the detective uncovers more and, and tries to figure out what happened, what went wrong. Um, how, how he can begin to fix some of the things that are broken with these people. Uh, you see some really some really intricate and really well done character arcs for all the characters involved. Most of the characters, if not all of them, um, learn quite a bit about themselves during the story and about what makes them tick and what's what's valuable to them and trying to identify that that point where, um, something broke or something went wrong and trying to figure out if it's fixable or or how to deal with it if it is not fixable. So yeah, that's for now, that's my synopsis. Okay. What was it about the story that made it stand out as a recommendation other over, you know, your other crime comics that you've read? Um, for me... It was the attention to detail in terms of character development. Um, the characters are all very, 
very rich and very nuanced as far as I'm concerned and they mm-hmm. feel they feel very real and they're very um they're very multifaceted. Nobody is just straight up good and nobody is just straight <laughs> up evil. Uh, these are all, you know, complicated people who all have layers to them and, and imperfections to them. Uh, even the villain in the story who actually I'm not going to say too much about because I can't really I can't really get into detail without spoiling it. Um, even the villain in the story, that particular person has different levels or different sides to him and there's a reason why he does the things that he does. You, I, I don't agree with it. You may not even empathize with it, but you can understand it. You can um, look at him and see the logic in, in what he's doing and why he's doing it. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to go over the art style of, of, of Cliff Chang's a little bit so that our listeners can get a mental image of what his style is like? Sure, sure. Um, Cliff Chang has a really... To me, it's kind of it's kind of a unique style because I hadn't in this in this genre I haven't seen it done that way yeah. uh, a lot of times. Um, it's a very how would I explain it? Very um, graphic, very clean style. Yeah. Um, His texture is super smooth. There aren't a lot of like rough edges. Uh, his line work is very smooth is just the only way that I can kind of describe it. Yeah, it's very yeah. reminiscent of some of the 50s um, yeah. comics or some of the 50s renderings mm-hmm. of yeah. the type of characters I would see. Which is a, a really interesting choice stylistically because you have yeah. these areas of the comic that are that are very dark and very gritty and they have these heavy blacks and yeah. it all works though. It all hangs together really well. Yeah. Yeah, it's I, I'm looking at some of the, the pictures that he's drawn right here and you know his it's it's somewhere in between like realistic and cartoony yeah like in yeah. in the way that like darwin cook's art is almost you know yeah um, yeah good comparison yeah and that's 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 kind of how i would describe it like uh, for those of you that don't necessarily know darwin cook um another example that comes to mind is like if you can think of like batman the animated series mm-hmm. uh, as another point of reference it's a it's Very maybe so. a more realistic version of that style you know um maybe matured or aged i i yeah or detailed let's go with that yeah. i like how yeah. he's able to draw many different types of faces and bodies yeah like you don't have everybody who just looks the same but with a different hairstyle or hair color <laughs> yeah he has a very good sense of of body language too yeah. just, just the yeah. physicality of the characters and um, how expressive it is and mm-hmm. the gesticulation, you know, like w- if they're talking or leaping over something. Yeah. Um, I do like as well, I, I I get the impression, I can't say for sure, but I get the impression from the way that um, Cliff Chang is, is working things out on the page that he's fully aware of what he's doing. There's like an intentional juxtaposition of, of kind of a, a dark subject matter with almost a little bit more of a lighthearted rendering to it. Like I said, the Creeper is this kind of um, mocking, jeering character that mm. has that is dressed in this, this garish costume. So it, there's an element of darkness to the story, but there's also an element of sort of dark humor to it as well. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think Chang is conscious of that, and he lets it sort of creep into the work a little bit. So mm. I appreciate that. The Creeper is not really... Well, I guess this 
the creeper is based on the superhero creeper, right? The character. Yeah, by this Steve feels Ditko. like it's like some sort of alternate universe or like a reimagining, or a reimagining of, of, the of that character. Of the creeper. Yeah. Okay. Because the original I, creeper was like he was yellow skinned and he was just this completely bizarre individual who had. I, I don't know what you call that. One of those things that you wear around your neck, like a. He was a reporter who went through like the same soup bath of Joker did. At least that's how I remember it from the animated series. Oh wow! Yeah, he. I, I don't really know too much about the creeper other than that, but. Yeah, I never even knew that before. I thought yeah. it was just a, a standalone thing. It is a standalone thing. Yeah. It's this isn't related to that creeper. It's kind of. I think it's just a reimagining of the concept of the creeper. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Um. Because the, yeah, like the original Creeper was this DC yeah. superhero who was crazy, like the Joker was crazy, except yeah. he was a good guy. Yeah. Ah, okay. Gotcha. Um, but it's been a super long time since I read this comic, so I, but I remember when I did read it, it didn't have anything, I didn't feel like I needed to know any of that. Yeah. 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 Um, also, just... I don't know the the way it's wrapped up. By the time you get to the end, uh, and that last scene, and you read the last few lines, it's just it's really poetic. It's really graceful, and it's very I don't know. It's it's very satisfying um, the way that all the characters are tied together, and the way that all the loose ends are tied up. Mm-hmm. So it, it may not be exactly what you were expecting, but it is a satisfying ending in the sense that. You know, you don't feel cheated or you don't feel like um, you missed out on anything or that the writer missed something. Yeah. Yeah, Jason Hall, he... I don't really know too many of his other comics, but the other comics of his that I do know, he's a good crime comic writer. Uh, he wrote a couple of comics uh, back when Matt Kent was in, was doing a lot of indie stuff. Uh, he and Matt Kent did a couple of crime comics called Pistol Whip, mm. which are really mm. good, too. Yeah, I think I have those actually uh, in part of my in one of my stacks at home, and I need to check it out still. Some good stuff. Uh, Beware the creeper. It's interesting that that was a, a Vertigo book. Uh, I feel like t- today all of our uh, choices had some origin at DC Comics, right? <laughs> Road's Perdition. Uh, Scene of the Crown was originally published by Vertigo. Uh, you had your Joker book, and yeah. now we've got Beware the Creeper. That, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. an interesting. I didn't, I didn't realize that until just now. Yeah. Yeah, me neither. Today's kind of a, a DC party. Yeah, which is pretty ironic considering we started out talking about Stan. <laughs> <laughs> he's, I'll bet she's rolling over right now. Sorry, Stan. Sorry. <laughs> All right. Cool. Thanks for uh, coming over, guys, and sharing uh, your recommendations with us. It was, it's always fun to talk comics with you. Yep. And yeah. thank you guys for all listening out there. And uh, we hope you enjoyed it. Yeah. We'll uh, try and post up some pictures of some of the things that we were talking about on our Instagram page. So you can check it out for yourself. And hopefully you can hit the library or go to the, your local comic book store and, you know, pick it up, pick up a copy for yourself. Yeah. And some glamour shots of Albert, too. Some glamour uh, shots of Albert at the local comic book store? Just in general. Anywhere. Yeah, I, I guess I could take oh, pictures no, we of take, myself. Pic- we could take pictures of Albert and put that on our Instagram. Oh, yeah. I thought he just meant like leaving them at random bus stations. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you could do that too. Stops. I mean, wow. there can never be enough pictures of you, man. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. 
sure. <laughs> Would you like to have a picture of Albert? Oh, no, I see him right now. It's yeah. very live. He's, he's processing the glory of yeah. me in real time. It's for those who don't have the yeah. pleasure to be sitting at home. Well, you don't see him during the week, and there's definitely lots of times when you don't have physical access to yeah, him. Yeah, but three hours of Albert in the room is... It's probably enough. It's just a lot. It lasts like, if, a lot. We, if we go over that three-hour limit, it'll be like the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. His, his head could melt. <laughs> <laughs> don't look at it! Don't look at it, Mary! <laughs> It's cool now. We'll get you some Albert flyers to post your office here at work. We'll get you some, some of those small pictures so you can put them in your wallet. There you go. <laughs> you can tell people I'm your kid. <laughs> <laughs> this is my son. This is, this is, this is my grown Asian this is my, son. I adopted him last week. <laughs> my adult Asian son. Uh, it's so sweet. Uh. <laughs>